thanks for joining us here. We're going to have a little fun talking about swing trading. Jason and I do this all the time off mic. So we just figured, why don't we just start doing a series of spaces where we have the same conversations that we have with each other, but in front of a group, because we figure this is the type of content that could benefit a lot of people. This is not for your tick by tick traders who are watching the chart for every three second candle. I know I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but it's really for the folks that are longer time horizon traders that have you know a horizon of weeks to months to years and the reason that we're talking about it that way is i know there's a lot of folks that are very much into day trading there's nothing wrong with that and if you're killing it there great but there's also a lot of opportunities inside these longer time frames and particularly in a variety of other asset classes and i think this is one of the most interesting things to talk about because the sort of uncorrelated returns that we're able to get this year for example jason in commodities have been pretty staggering Yes. And, and, you know, I saw you post, post something recently too, about, you know, cocoa being this major outperformer, um, cattle being this major outperformer, you know, when we're looking at things, we have to also think of all these different asset classes and think about the seventies, for example. So if we're looking at the commodities market and going, <clears throat> okay, in the seventies, you didn't really do well in stocks at all. You did terribly basically from uh, late sixties into 1982, there was a very long flat period. It was terrible. But commodities were doing really well, and that's what most of the early Market Wizards books were based on. These people that were trend-following traders, that were futures traders, and so on, buying these commodities, making a lot of money in these areas, um, and doing really well and outperforming the market uh, majorly. You know, I, they've still never seen the same returns that they saw in Market Wizards one in any of the Market Wizards. You know, we're talking like. You know, some guys have thousand percent returns. I remember Larry Williams had like a ten thousand percent return. I mean, once again, like these guys will even tell you they were too leveraged. You know, that's a little too leveraged in general. You shouldn't trade like that. But just in general, what we're saying is that there was major trends in certain places. So you have to look to all these different areas um, in trading. Even the ability to go long and short. That's another thing that's great about futures. You know, being short the bond market has has been great this year for us. Um, being long, some of these commodities have been great. Uh, long tech worked well at the beginning of this year, and now it's now it's not. You know, and that's how it goes. And not every trade is going to work perfectly, but if you diversify, you have a lot more winners than losers. And if you keep your losers small, and you let your winners be big, similar to to orange juice, uh, sugar, cocoa, then you have a really great trading uh, strategy and a trading system that's robust and can make money in just about any type of market. And that's really the key here, I think, to sort of zoom out from what you're saying is this idea that we don't have to just trade stocks. We don't have to just trade U.S. stocks. We certainly don't just have to trade seven stocks, which have been pretty much the leadership this year. There's a whole universe of different financial instruments that don't necessarily correlate with the S&P that are worth trading. Because most of the time, if we're centered in the universe of U.S. equities, we're going to even and even to some degree us duration we're going to have a fair amount of correlation across the portfolio and in a more difficult market environment which certainly we're seeing and have been really since the summer peak that's where it becomes much more attractive to start look looking for those uncorrelated returns in particular but really it's a good strategy to employ through and through and you know we have a number of different drivers that tell me 
and Jason, we've talked about this as well, that commodities could actually start to be more of an outperformer over the longer time horizon here. Because, you know, as we get through the end of this credit cycle, and, you know, with that, we may have a bit of a washout in a lot of these things, including commodities. But into the next one, we have to kind of remember there's some underlying larger big picture macro themes that could drive some longer term swing trading and investment opportunities. And what I mean is that we have scarcity kind of built in now. It's become more of a de facto component of a lot of these resources. So if you look at energy, we had the lowest new discoveries in oil and gas resources in the year of 2021 that we had in 75 years. But the decades leading up to that were also just sort of lower and lower discoveries. There's some degree of energy scarcity in the present but also moving forward to the future. And I know there's been this talk of, oh, we're going to have peak oil. And I don't mean like in the availability of it, but I mean in the usage of it. That's become a new mantra. I don't really see that coming, but even if it does, it's certainly not going to be something we see anytime too soon. So this idea that structurally speaking, there could continue to be opportunities in energy both in the present and moving forward is something to keep an eye on. And similarly, we look at base metals. Uh, you know, There has been not enough exploration and production in copper. We look at agriculture. We've got changing weather patterns. We've got less arable soil. We've got uh, a lot of vulnerabilities to some of these crops where they have to apply more and more herbicides just to try to get the same kind of yields out of it because the, the weeds that they're fighting off, of, unfortunately, are actually becoming very, very resilient. And so what does this all add up to? It adds up to, structurally speaking, that inelasticity on the supply side could be a driver of upside in that commodity trade. So I like that you brought up the first market wizards and some of the things that happened in the 70s because we do have some analogs to that as we navigate through. And it's interesting because even in the here and now, because of some of the actions of OPEC and some of the underlying components of just idling production, not doing exploration in the West, we actually have scarcity of energy in the here and now. And of course, the geopolitical tensions don't help with that at all. Oil is a geopolitical hedge when things get uncertain, particularly in any places of the world where there's a lot of oil it does get a bid and it's been in this sort of structurally sound uptrend since let's just call it July. I mean, really that's when it started to put in this base. We've had a number of different touchdowns on that lower trend line. I think I called the last three as being, these are great places for entries in energy in even just direct exposure to crude futures. And it has been the case and it continues to be the case because one of the keys about systematic trading about trading momentum is just keeping it simple. If we're going from the bottom left to the upper right of the chart, and I know this is a vast oversimplification, but let's just look at it from the perspective of momentum. Why would we want to fight that? We would want to benefit from that. And that's exactly what oil is doing. Now, you can obviously start to become more sophisticated and build systems around that. Jason, this is something you're incredibly good at, at finding these entries and exit points. But at the end of the day, you know, having some level of just looking at what's happening with price in a variety of asset classes, finding relative strength. For example, one of the reasons that I got interested in oil was because I saw that oil and the entire commodity index were outperforming the broader market. So to me, that's telling me there's relative strength, there's possibly a rotation, there's some of those reacceleration of inflation forces kind of coming back. And that was one of the reasons I got interested in looking at oil, but I wasn't ready to go in until I saw that entry, you know, until I got basically from my own system, a signal to enter. And Jason, you do a lot of that as well. Your training is very systematic in nature. And I think that's a really interesting area to talk about. 
Yeah, and for me, everything is about trends, right? And relative strength. Everything's about trends and relative strength. Price is king. Sure, I can, um, I can just like the other anybody else. I can sit here and make fundamentals about just about anything, right? So I could come in here and I could kind of say, you know, there's a million. I was, I was having this conversation with Ian yesterday. There's a million reasons why I wouldn't stay long um, orange juice right now. There's no reason to be long orange juice. Um, yes, and some people say, well, it's because of this hurricane. It's because of this. It's because of that. Yes, there were things that did happen. Um, there are fundamentals that I can look at and positioning that I could look at and say, yeah, or, uh, orange juice was going to make a major move. Did I know that it was going to continue to move? No. Uh, to this degree, absolutely not. I could have priced in, you know, uh, a 20, 30, 40% move. You know, that would have been... Uh, pretty normal, but seeing how it's just continued to carry over and over again, like, wow, way over 20%, way over anything I could have thought, which is why when I'm trading, I could come up with my fundamental idea. I can even enter something on fundamentals, which I usually don't, but some somebody else could. But the one thing that you hear that's consistent throughout all of the market wizards is once they're in a trade, there's nothing that could shake them out of a trade. And I've said this before when you and I talk about this all the time is like, even if, you know, God came in here and was like, Jason, I could see the future. And you know what? <laughs> Your trade is is going to it's going to crash today. I'd be like, well, God, I'm really sorry, but my system is still long, you know, and, and as ridiculous as it sounds, it's the truth, because I think you'll make a lot more money just being disciplined more than anything. If you can hold your discipline and your discipline is to just stay along this thing, get out when you have your exit signal or, and your exit signal could be technical, it could be fundamental, whatever it is, as long as you write it before you put on the trade. And the important part of that is if you're in that trade, I could come up with a million reasons why I should get out of a winning trade. I have a lot of money on the table, so that's going to mess with my brain and my psyche is going to tell me, hey, Jason, you should probably take that and run. That looks really cool. And, and, and once again, you never know when a trend will end. I don't care who it is. Uh, people say like, oh, I knew this. And no, you didn't. Nobody knows when a trend will end. Um, for example, if you were, you know, long orange juice, it looked like a really good trend. And I could have said, hey, I want to get out here. This is probably the top every day for the last few months, honestly. <laughs> and so like looking at that and kind of going like, yeah, I could, I should get out of that. And then going, oh, well, you know, it's going further and my system is right. And the other way to test this out is just to go, if you really, really do it, you know, and you really can get your ego out of it, write down when you want to get out of a trade compared to when a trend system says to get out of a trade. Now, once again, it, there's two parts of it. One is, let's say that trade goes up and it comes back and hits my exit or my stop. That's, that's okay, but that's not going to be a perfect top, right? So sometimes it's going to be a situation where it comes back and like I would have wanted to get out early, but it just comes back and gets me out at about the same point. Sometimes it goes to places like orange juice, cocoa, or any of these things where you would have never dreamed them going to. Um, and so as traders, we have to really know I'm hunting for those outliers. I'm not sitting there and going, Hey, I really want to trade well and, and make, uh, be profitable every single time. I need to make money every time because that doesn't make you money. People think high win rates make you money. High win rates do not make you money. Big wins make you money. 
So if you're sitting there and you're able to hold on to these major trends and you have these big winners like cocoa, orange juice, and then you have like a bunch of really tiny losers if you're risk managed proper, it properly and you're losing 1% per trade, and then you have something that's making 20, 40, 50% of your portfolio on these trades, you're still making really good money. So, but if I'm sitting here and I have a bunch of 1% losers and a bunch of 1% winners and, you know, I'm, I'm not making money there. I'm basically flat. So you have to figure out your trading style. Um, are you looking for those big winners? Do you want to have a high win rate? Um, I know that in general, if you talk about any of the really great traders in history, George Soros, um, Drucken Miller, um, any of the guys from the market wizards, all of them will tell you that they lose over 50% of their trades and you could fade their trades and make money. How is that possible? So it's possible because you could fade their trades and make money, um, sure, because they're wrong so much. However, if they, if you came in there and you were like, okay, well, I'm gonna, therefore, sorry, my computer cut out for a second, I'm back. Um, therefore, if you came in there and you were like, okay, well, if I decide to fade these trades and I'm right more than them, why am I not making money like they do? It's their discipline, it's their risk management, it's their models, it's their ability to do this again and again and again. So being able to do that again and again and again is your biggest weapon in making money in trading. Making money in trading isn't just about you know being right. Like anybody can be right. I can tell you that the NASDAQ will probably be uh, up a little bit more from here at the end of the year. I could be right. I could also make another post in 20 minutes saying the NASDAQ's gonna crash from here. I could be right too. I could delete one, tell everybody how right I was. Lots of people do that. The real thing that sets people apart is, what is your portfolio looking like? Is your portfolio making money? So if your portfolio is making money, that's everything. It's not about what people say or what people think, it's about the portfolio. And so your returns, that's everything. Yeah, I love that. I'd love to just kind of expound on some of the things you said. I agree with everything there. And I think the the ego point is a big one because we do see a lot of that people talking about unrealistically high win rates and, you know, posting uh, all kinds of profits, never talking about losers. And yet the thing is, you know, we're going to learn a lot from both sides of the trade. We're going to learn from our winners. We're going to learn from our losers. And I think that it, it behooves us to be humble enough to talk about both. There's no reason not to, you know, learn and explore every single trade that we've had and from some of the best trades we've ever had we may find ways to improve our system so that we can possibly capture more of those outsized returns just like for the ones that don't go so well there's no reason not to explore what did we do wrong were we emotional were we second guessing ourselves? did we not follow mm -hmm. our system and try to improve that consistency and i think that this speaks to the idea of trading journals which i think is so important and it really doesn't matter where you are in your trading journey but it's really important if you're earlier to get in the habit then rather than trying to start it later where it can be a little more hard to get into that discipline because you've already formed all these routines and how you're managing your money and how you're executing but no matter where you are in your trading journey a journey a journal can help because it's kind of like this place where you can go back and remove all the emotion and all the thinking that may have been clouded. And you can simply go back and say, well, okay, this is the trade I put on. This is where I put it on. This is why I put it on. This was my thesis. And then this is why I got out. 
Did it work? Did it not work? What happened? Did I get stopped out? Did I reach a target? Did I just impulsively exit the trade? All that stuff, as we compile it and learn from it, can actually help us to become more systematic. And one thing it'll do, and Jason, I'm sure you want to weigh in on this as well, is it'll get us away from our emotional self. Because the more we journal, the more we want a system. And the more we lean into a system, the less that we have our ego involved with our trading outcomes. Because if we're more concerned about being right than making money, then we're not going to make money consistently. But once we start becoming more concerned about managing risk first and foremost, cutting those losers quickly, but also having the fortitude to hold those winners. And that example that you cited with orange juice is so perfect. Like who would have thought that it would just soar up to, I mean, at this point, it's basically heading to infinity. Who knows where orange juice is going to go from here. Yeah. But it's it's incredible to see that run because there was a lot of stories along the way that, oh, supply is not an issue anymore. Everything is going to be fine. But that doesn't necessarily reconcile with the picture that price is painting, which is one where obviously, for whatever reason, the dynamics in the market say we we've had a lot more room to run, even though some of these supply issues have been ameliorated. And I think this is where we have to give respect to the market that sometimes it either knows things or at least it's going to express things and get excited about things that might go beyond what we expect, which is why taking ourselves out of it and thinking, you know, and this is the big mistake a lot of people think is they think they're smarter than the market. Let the market guide us. Let it be our compass. Let price kind of guide what it is that we're in. And if you get stopped out, fine, look for the next trade. There's nothing wrong with that. If you get stopped out in profit, I know a lot of people will say, oh, geez, I want to get right back in. That was such a great winner. I made so much money. No, there's no reason. If your system stops you out of a great trade or a bad trade, the best thing I found is to just look for the next one. Just take your eyes off the, you know, what's behind us out of the rear view mirror and look right at the road ahead because a lot of the best trades that you'll find are going to be different than the ones that you were just in. Like if, if Orange Juice has had this huge run and let's say next week it's down 10% and you get stopped out of the trade, I imagine there's going to be at least five or 10 other trading opportunities that you could get into if you're not distracted by fear of missing out in that Orange Juice trade, thinking, oh, geez, I'm going to miss that next extension. Absolutely. And that's that's so well said. And I, I think it's important to think of a story. And if you have something um, kind of like um, uh, if you ever if you've ever have you ever read uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator? Yes, that is a great book. And, and for everyone out there who hasn't read it, read it. And if you've read it once and it's been a while, read it again. Yes, absolutely. So if you're looking, if you read that book, there's a great part in there. And it's uh, basically it's a customer talking to old turkey. And I'm saying this off the top of my head. So bear with me here. So if you're talking to old turkey, basically, he's the old trader in, in the group. And people always thought this dude made a bunch of money, but they really didn't know. And so basically they would go to this guy and they'd ask him questions and they'd be like, hey, you know, I I think this is going to go up because of blank. And like, I know this is going to happen because I know this and I knew this guy and this tip, this insider tip told me this. And basically it goes, he would go and he'd cock his head to the side and he'd go, you know, it's a bull market. <laughs> and he'd do this over and over again. And this is kind of like the thing that, Livermore wasn't understanding in his early years of trading and he wouldn't understand how exactly can he continue to make this type of return like all the time how does this dude put this together 
And, you know, he's Livermore at this time, he's struggling over and over again. He's having struggles with learning how to trade. He's uh, getting into things too soon. He's making a couple ticks here and there. He's not realizing like he's making he's, he's doing he's winning a lot, but he's not making money. He's not understanding why. And then, he, you know, old Turkey keeps saying, well, you know, it's a bull market. And basically, his whole thing is being extremely bullish during these bull periods. You know, you want to be very bullish during these bull periods. And you want to be bearish during these bear periods. And the one thing that you also have to understand, and, and Livermore had charts in his room where he had ways of diagnosing these trends, you know? And so like, if you look at any trader in history, that's been very good, you have to understand how to diagnose trends um, in some way. Everybody had a trend following system at certain points um, because trends just go on a lot longer than you would ever think. So you have to understand those. I mean, and you can even be a short-term trader. Trend following systems work on, 15 minute time frames, hourly time frames, uh, very, I'm very long term, so very long term time frames, what, however you want to put it together, trend following systems are the way to do it. And so once again, it's because you get to take your ego out of it. My ego always tells me every time the market's gone up a lot, it's probably going to go down. That's what my ego tells me. And so every time I'm, I'm in a trade and it's gone up a lot, my ego's like, you should probably get out of that. That's scary. You know, that's parabolic. That's this, that's that. It's the other thing, you know, and uh, Ian and I talked about just, uh, you know, the NASDAQ in general, like, you know, coming out of 2020, this major trend, um, XLE, another major trend, oil going from 40 to, you know, over 100, another major trend, Bitcoin going from 10,000 all the way to 60,000, another major trend. And once again, as a trend trader, I have to know, and my systems are never going to get me in a perfect bottom because like... Mayhem said, you want a little bit of momentum behind these trades. You don't just want to get into trades as they're crashing. That's a way to lose money day after day. You want to get into these trends as they're moving higher. So I know I'm never going to catch a perfect bottom. That's something that you have to get out of when you start trading. Everybody wants to catch the perfect bottom. Catching a falling knife sounds awesome. And when you do it once in a great while, feels great. However, it's impossible to do it consistently. And because it's impossible to do it consistently, you can't make money doing it consistently. Yeah, you know, that's such a good point, too. There, there, that kind of comes back and dovetails into the conversation about ego and psychology. If we're trading simply to be right and to show others how right we are, then it's all about calling bottoms and tops, which, you know, like you said, maybe every once in a while we get real lucky and we find that. But the value in making better swing trades really comes from letting momentum work in your favor, qualifying that reversal so that you're not, because the thing is like, let's think about this, right? Who are we? We're retail. We're tiny. We don't move the market, but that's good because that means we can get in and out of things really fast. And you know, you can clear your whole portfolio in like a minute. Why does that help? Because if you think about it, we're like minnows swimming in a sea of sharks. And all we want to do in trend following is follow in their week, right? So let them do the heavy lifting. Let the institutions tell us the bottom is in. There's no reason not to. That's kind of what they're there for. They're setting the tone in the market every day. These are the biggest traders, right? They're the most active parties exchanging money. They're expressing their opinion, voting with their money on both sides of the ledger. So when they tell us that the bottom is in and that we're starting to reverse, sure, we might miss 5, 10, 15% of the move. But if the trend has changed, there could be another 30, 40, 50% left. And, and on the other side of it, if we get in too early, 
things can just keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And that's the risk of like, oh, I called the bottom. Yeah. And then it made a new bottom. And then that bottom made another bottom. And then there was a bottom within that bottom. And then eventually it reversed and there was a trend to exploit. And so why be early? Why bother? Like, I know there's a lot of folks that just want to buy every dip, especially in the stock market. And look, I get it because from basically March of 2009 on with seldom interruption, that strategy paid. And so, you know, and particularly in certain components of the market, but maybe that's not necessarily the best way to play the game. You know, that was a very forgiving environment of maximum liquidity and low interest rates and everything to support a bid in equities. And those things are kind of going the other way. So maybe now it's about, like Jason said, finding relative strength, because even in a difficult market, if you're just trading stocks, there's still going to be those stocks showing relative strength. Like last year, that was a pretty difficult market environment. And yet there were some stocks you could look at that you wouldn't even know that the S&P was down. You wouldn't even know that a lot of bloodshed is happening because they were continuing to run. They, they were showing relative strength. And this is the same thing when you zoom out to multiple asset classes. Even in a much more difficult market environment, there are going to be trends that we can exploit to the upside. There will, of course, be in a difficult market environment, lots of trends to exploit to the downside for folks that are comfortable in shorting. And another thing is there will be pair trades. One of my favorite pair trades right now that I've been talking about, you know, pretty much on and off this whole year, but I started to put it right back on about a month ago was long low vol and short high beta. Now let's think about why. Why would you want to get long defensives and get short higher risk stocks in equal size? And the way I express this trade is long SPLV, short SPHB, and rebalance it once a week on Friday, again, in equal size. Because in my mind, we're at the end of the cycle and this trade is showing me relative strength. So my macro thesis, is looking at the broader credit cycle saying, you know, it really looks like there's way too much allocation in high beta, way too little in defensives. In fact, they're very, very aggressively shorted and hedge funds are super concentrated in the mega caps. And so I said, okay, so I've got my macro idea, but I can't sit here and call the bottom in defensive. So I'm going to wait for relative strength to show me the way. And it did. And that trade has been absolutely on fire. I think it's up like 15 or 20% over the month on, you know, if you're looking at the delta between the pairs and how much they've moved. And that's the kind of pair trade that one can put on using relative strength as well. Like that is to say, relative strength isn't just for longs or shorts. It can also be used to express pair trades and also to qualify whether they're still working. Because if that relative strength breaks down, it's a good time to consider unwinding that trade. But the thesis behind setting up a trade like that for me is kind of understanding some of the dynamics. Think about it. If you're a money manager right now, your mandate is to keep the majority of your cash deployed for your clients in equities. Okay, so you can't just run into bonds and who would want to at this point anyway? It's a total bloodbath. But you can't run into money markets. You can't run into bills. You, you just you can't run into gold or anything like that. You know, and a lot of them have kind of narrow mandates and some of them are factor mandates or otherwise. So that's one of the reasons the mega caps have had such a bid because climbing the ladder of larger and larger factors as a heuristic for quality has been one of the things we've seen, which is, by the way, not something you see in a bull market. But nevertheless, this low vol high beta is the idea that these same guys are going to go, oh, geez, we're way too long risk, like risky risk, high beta, and we don't have enough allocation 
into these more defensive components. And then you look at things like the SPLV and SPHB ratio versus credit spreads versus volatility. You see that there's a correlation. When there's broader stress in the market, this pair trade works because that volatility is compelling that same rotation. People are running into safety and out of high beta. So just an example of how swing trading can be driven by momentum and you can have a broader macro thesis but you use the momentum to qualify it so you don't let your own psychology get in the way of executing the trade to the best of your ability well said and that's the thing it's it's all about momentum right you know if you're sitting there in a, in a trade and you can't really you have to wait for the market to confirm it right because i have tons of opinions and feelings I have tons of opinions, tons of feelings. I could think the market's going to go up today, tomorrow, the next day. I have all types of ideas, and that's what we all have as traders. So how do you filter those ideas? Well, you wait for the market to confirm it, really. Uh, that's the simplest thing I think I could tell anybody is if you want to become a profitable trader, and I've been, you know, I've worked for hedge funds. I've done this for many, many years. Um, I have my own fund. Doing that in general tells me that hey there's plenty of people out here and i've seen all these people all these traders all these years i've met tons of great traders and so on but the one thing that's always consistent is that they let the market tell them they're right you know they have great opinions most of them do i mean and i don't care like you, you there's people on here who think that these fundamental guys never look at the charts which i find hilarious you know they think the fundamental guys never look at the charts like Warren Buffett, all these guys. However, there's an interesting study, and I won't get too into it, but if you guys want to look into it, there's an interesting one on Warren Buffett and how basically he puts his trades together. And what somebody noticed that was a trend-following trader was that most of the time, his newer trades in like smaller stocks were at 52-week highs. You know, and, and he found this kind of interesting. And if you notice, even like a couple of years ago, I remember there was a gold trade in I think it was Barrick, uh, and you know he bought it around a 52-week high, and I was like, "Wow, that's really that's really technical," you know. Like, and once again, people would never think of someone like Warren Buffett buying things that high. And most of the time, when people see someone like Buffett buying it that high, they're going, "Oh, it's because of this fundamental thing," and they think it's going to be greater in the coming years and so on. Um, you want the market to confirm it. And I don't care what type of trader it is. I've seen all different types of desks, all the fundamental guys, they have some sort of technical indicator on there, whether it's moving averages, um, a certain amount of day highs using Donchian channels, some sort of indicator on their desk every day as they look at the market. So, I, and it's not because I'm saying that you have to be a technical trader and it's the only way to be. What I'm saying is that if you're a technical trader, I see a thumbs down. That's funny. Um, if you're a technical trader and you decide or you're a fundamental trader and you want to come in and go, OK, well, I need to um, create a risk management system. How exactly do you do that without using using the charts? You can't do it without using a chart. You have to use a chart to figure out your risk management. And every good trader that I've ever met, they all has risk management systems. There's there's not one that doesn't have a risk management system. And maybe somebody out there goes, oh, I'm a great trader. How long have you been trading? A year? Two years? Like, so there's some people who get lucky. It's like Mayhem said, when you're talking about the 2020 period, 
and you're going, oh, yeah, well, you know, some there's so many great traders that year. Yeah, because you could buy anything. You could throw a dart at the wall and buy it and call it a day. Um, however, the people who have been around for 10, 20 years doing this year after year, grinding, living through those really tough periods, those are the people that all have these systems. They all have systems and risk management systems and ways to handle losses. Because if you don't, your losers will become bigger than your winners, and then you just lose money. That's the end of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Also, just going back to Buffett, he he's he's not only you know a, a bit of a trader. I mean, look at the time period he held Taiwan Semi. It was it was like several months. He realized a huge gain, got right out. That's <laughs> that's not purely fundamentally driven. Nothing fundamental changed that much in that short period of time. But then the other part of it is look at what he did in Japan. Not only does he use fundamentals and technicals to some degree, there's plenty of evidence of that, but it's pretty clear he's also macro savvy because he went to Japan as he knew that interest rates would be rising. We saw that there is this... Um, you know, push by the central bank to begin normalizing the yield curve. And what does that mean to debt denominated uh, in the yen that's that's in Japan? It means that the price of that debt is going to go down as rates go up. So he went to Japan, issued a bunch of debt, and that debt is trading below par. He, he literally almost top ticked that debt market, which is pretty incredible. He also went in and bought shares in a bunch of Japanese trading houses and not a single one but equal in a bunch, which is not fundamental driven. It's clearly big picture, top down macro. So it's funny because, you know, sometimes people kind of get pigeonholed like, oh, he's the macro guy or he's the fundamental guy or he's the technical guy. But often is the case. There's more nuance. There's more of a blended approach. And just like you said, Jason, and I love what you hit on there, that if you've been at this for a while, you're probably not just leaning on one thing. You've probably learned that there's no one system that's always right, that it's really about finding some degree of coalescence, getting some stronger signal where you see multiple things pointing to the same potential outcome. And it's pretty clear to me that one of the greatest investors of all time, Buffett, is doing exactly that. And he's been around the block. I can't imagine that he just sits there staring at you know earnings reports and balance sheets all day. It makes all his decisions off that. Right? There's so much more depth to his process, but that's an amazing bit of inspiration for all of us, whether we're swing traders, investors, hopefully a combination of two. I hope no one's just swing trading and not also long-term investing because you want to take those gains and park it somewhere where you can have income or capital appreciation or both. But at the end of the day, we know when we look at some of the greats out there, we can't put them in a single bucket. There's so much more depth to what they're doing. And this is a little point of wisdom, by the way, about finance and markets and life in general. Never stop learning. Never yeah. be satisfied with what you think you know, because there's always more to learn. And being humble allows us to realize that there's far more that we don't know than what we do know. And in the world of finance, that's incredibly important because, Jason, how many times have you had a trading system that worked wonders until it didn't, and then you had to reinvent it? And that's part of that, right? Well, you know, there's, there's two things. So the longer term systems and trend following work very well for long periods of time. Um, so, but there's two different things. So if we're looking at it and going, okay, well, I've got to create these long term systems that work well, that's one thing. But then also you have to think of what are these different market environments? That's the biggest thing to really understand. You have so many different market environments. What's going to work well in this one? What's going to work well in that one? Um, I have my own way of kind of diagnosing that, but also think about it very simply. If there's a lot of liquidity, trend following systems that are long-term 
will rip your face off, you know, 90% of the time. If there's no liquidity, then you have a situation where maybe an option seller or a range trader or a day trader will rip your face off 90% of the time. So this is why funds kind of create different types of traders. So if, if I'm working at a fund, most of the time, you're going to have a trader who's long-term, a trader who's short-term, um, a trader who's only in options. Somebody might be into um, selling bonds, buying bonds, you know, like you never know. So there's a bunch of different traders most of the time. And what I explain to people and what I think is important is to think about yourself like a fund. You want to have your long-term investments, like Mayhem said, you know, you have your very long-term, like maybe some boring uh, I bonds, you know, inflation protected bonds that were netting 10% last year, which were really great. So you have some of those. And then maybe you have a little bit of gold and silver tucked away somewhere. Then maybe you have your retirement account. Then maybe you have some risky stuff. Like that's where, you know, if you're a person who likes something like Bitcoin or something in 30 years, maybe you put a little bit of money in something like that. You put your smallest amount of money in the riskiest things, your most amount of money in the most stable things. And then you have your trading account. And like you said, you, you can't just have all of your gains constantly going back into your trading account because once again, you have to understand what type of trader you are. So me as a trend following trader in a choppy market, I'm not going to do as well as someone else. So also understanding, hey, I'm in a choppy market. Maybe I don't need to have positions as big. Maybe I don't need to have positions at all. Maybe I need to go on vacation. You know, like there's there's lots of ways to think about it. You know, like uh, you know, in the, in that book as well, he talks about there's a time to go long, there's a time to go short, and there's a time to go fishing. And people think the fishing part's funny. But really what he's saying is when the market is really range bound and you're sitting there and you're trying to buy these trends in a range bound market and you're trying to make money, it's really tough. So some, so there's some really good range bound traders or some really good day traders. I'm not saying that you can't do it. I'm saying understand yourself. Myself, I'm good at swing trading to position trading and long-term investing. That's my thing. I'm not a day trader. Uh, I don't think of myself as being able to trade very well in a day to three day time frame. Uh, so I know that about myself. So I'm in that scenario. I'm going to just take myself out of it completely and go, I don't need to be in that. But as a trader who trades so many different products, this is why it's important to trade all these different products and understand futures and understand all these things, because I can trade all over the world and trading all over the world. There's other trends. So, for example, orange juice isn't available in an ETF. You can't find it in an ETF. So what do you do to trade orange juice? Well, you have to trade futures. So I'm able to find these trends in other areas most of the time. There's not really a time where I don't look at my portfolio and see something that's making a major move up or down. I go long or short. So being able to go long or short, the trend systems tell me to go long or short. I'm able to be in these trends for very long periods of time in all types of diverse markets. But if you're just sitting there and looking at the S&P 500 every day, you're going, well, my returns are nothing but whatever the S&P 500 is doing. Um, and let's say you have a retirement account and your trading account. Now your returns are completely correlated to your retirement account, which sucks. The whole point of diversification is to have something that's moving when the other thing is not moving or when, you know, the market crashes, something else makes money and figuring those things out, I think is the most important thing of your journey as a trader. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's those are some really good points. I, I'd love to hone in on one in particular, which is knowing what kind of trader you are, because there are so many different cross currents out there. There's so many different influences on social media, whether you're on Twitter or X or I don't even know what we call it these days, YouTube, <laughs> Reddit, you know, all these places. There's all these different communities and, and people have varying opinions. And I'll say the biggest fights that I see on here, and Jason, you've probably seen the same, are people who have like different opinions on different time frames and they can both be right but they're at each other's throats because they don't see like okay well this guy could be right you know over the next one to three days and then this guy could be right over the next one to three months and they're both right but they're looking at different time frames and i think it's good to be humble about that but it's also good to know how we're wired if you're not able to trade in a certain type of environment step back recalibrate most people do not succeed at this game. Let's be very honest mm. and real that most yep. people do not succeed. Within two years, the survival rate in trading is about 10%. Why? Because at the end of the day, people come in with unrealistic expectations. They, and, and honestly, if your first trade is a big winner, it could set you up for disaster because then you think you have the Midas touch and you don't do any risk management and you, you just keep piling on and on and on and then you eventually blow up. But at the end of the day, if you're not suited for the type of trading you're doing, that doesn't mean you're not suited for trading, period. And this is a really yes. important point. Like you might say, oh, well, my buddy trades the S&P all day long and he's trading these five minute scalps. And he's just killing it. Well, good for him. But if that doesn't work for you, then why are you trying to do it? Right. So if you dabble mm -hmm. in that and you're like, ah, I can't do that. You know, he, he he's obviously so much better of a trader. Well, maybe he is as a day trader and that's fine and that's cool everyone to their own but maybe you're wired to trade over a longer time frame and the nice thing about trading over a longer time frame is there's less commissions there's less you know you don't have to sit and watch your terminal every two seconds for these kinds of moves unless you're incredibly leveraged at which point we need to have a conversation about position sizing and risk management <laughs> <laughs> but like at the end of the day you know there's a lot of advantages to longer time frames because it's less mentally exhausting and the other thing i see with a lot of day traders is they just burn out they're watching Globex, they're watching pre-market, regular trading hours, after market. They're just constantly plugged in. And, you know, I will say this, the best traders, the best day traders I know, they get in, they do a couple trades and they're done for the day. So if you're really like feeling glued to the terminal, you're probably also not day trading the way you should in a way where you're running a marathon rather than running a sprint. But looking at the longer time frames, what I like about what you said also is, you know, zoom out. There's no reason to get stuck in like, seven stocks there's no reason to be stuck in the us and the asset classes that are just available here i really love the idea of if if you're comfortable if you're a more seasoned trader if you're able to have the risk appetite and the requisite capital exploring the world of futures because there is a lot to benefit from it and one of the things that i love about futures is they have better tax treatment so if you're a higher frequency trader and you're not locking in one term capital, get, you know, one year capital gains, you get that 60-40 tax treatment, long, short mm -hmm. cap gains. And then you also don't have wash sales. Like you, you can actually, if you don't have a winning trade, you can deduct that wash sale. Uh, you know, if you have another trade within that 30-day period, it doesn't matter, which is huge because in stocks and options, you get absolutely hosed on that. And when you're trading futures, you have a lot more flexibility. Right. Because I know some folks that trade stocks are like, oh, but I can't sell it here for a loss because then I can't get back in or I won't be able to realize that. It's like, well, 
then you're not really trading. You're like, you're kind of like using accounting to make a trading decisions, which is not going to work over the long run. And then the other thing, and Jason, we've talked about this a lot, is that if you're really trying to manage your risk, you know, with single stocks, there's no limit to your downside or upside, which sounds attractive sometimes, but it's also a little scary because you can wake up and whatever you own is down like 80% and you're completely wiped out. But with futures, what's nice is typically A, that type of move is extremely rare, but B, you have 23 hour a day, five day a week access. So, you know, you can get stopped out a lot earlier in those types of moves, particularly in the more liquid contracts. So you're not just waking up to a, you know, a market session that starts off, it's real illiquid, and then you get stopped out at the worst possible price. Instead, you know, you're, you're able to manage that risk a little bit better. And for me, and I value the ability to sleep when I'm able to sleep, that helps yeah. me sleep better at night. <laughs> no, that's a great point. And I, I think in general, that's something that a lot of people don't take into consideration is those overnight moves. Like for example, you know, if I'm sitting there overnight and oil moves down and hits my stop, like, and I don't have to wake up to it. You know, if you wake up to earnings, for example, and that's probably the one reason why I really, really always stick to futures. Earnings uh, drops drive me insane. Uh, and I don't have to deal with that in futures. In futures, like, yeah, there's some weakened risk, but it's very rare. I've had it happen to me one time in history um, where I got to stop, like something got past my stop over the weekend. But if I'm in a normal stock and there's earnings, you know, a few times a year, I'm going to get blasted some of those days. And that's just going to happen. So I'm really, I really like futures for that fact because they're very liquid markets and they're always running. Um, people are always trading it. Uh, granted, like if you're going to trade orange juice, it's hard to have like a tight stop in something of orange juice. It can get pushed around a bit. Traders overnight will do that. But everything else, uh, you're talking about very liquid markets. And so, you know, I think in general, people just understanding futures. And I mentioned this in 2020. I said, hey, you know, everybody that I know, you need to start to get into futures. Understand it. Understand how to trade it because commodities are going to start moving. And when commodities started to move and then all these people started to get interested afterwards, they didn't really know how to trade futures. They didn't really know it. So they're just jumping in. They're just trying and people are getting blasted. They're trying to, you know, uh, buy oil and then oil's crashing to negative zero, you know, <laughs> like and it's just all of these crazy things are happening. So you really have to kind of put it together and go, OK, well, I'm going to really study futures and just understand it because one, there's a lot of leverage you can get a lot of leverage in futures. The great thing about a trend following trader uh, like me, I never run out of capital uh, because I do manage my positions really well, but I can always put, as my signals come, I can always put on a new position. Um, so that's great. So, but at the same time, because of that amount of leverage, you could just decide, hey, I'm gonna just plow into this trade and this area, and I really, really like oil here, so I'm gonna buy the crap out of it, and you know, I'm gonna 5X my account um, leverage, you'll blow up. You know, once again, if you're 5Xing your account and you you go back 20%, you've blown up your entire account. You've blown up all of your equity. You're getting margin calls. That's the end of it anyways. Um, so you really have to understand that leverage and trade smaller than you think you'd have to. You know, I think what happens a lot of the time in professional trading is they'll bring somebody in to train a trader that's having trouble. And 99% of the time, what that person will do is go, hey, you need to knock your position size down. Your positions are way too big. 
So what does that tell you? That tells you that most people trade way too big. And really, you can't really, it's very hard to hold on to a trend. Like think about Bitcoin. If I have, let's make it 100K account to make it an easy number. Uh, take of it 10K, 100K, however you want to. Um, if I have 100K in my account and I buy Bitcoin and I use all 100K to do it, and Bitcoin has a very high volatility. If you want to hang on to those trends, you could have pullbacks of 30, 40, 50% um, in the middle of a trend. So it's it's a wild product to be out there. So you at least have to run a crazy wide stop. So you're running $100,000 on this. Um, it runs back, you know, 30, 40%. It's not going to be very easy to hold on to that. You've lost $40,000 in your account. But if you have a smaller position in Bitcoin, and let's say you only have a $5,000 position, if that moves against you uh, in your $100,000 account, you're able to hold on to that. You're able to think, hey, you know, if it's 30% pullback, I'm only losing, you know, one to 2% of my account. Um, and keeping your sizes small enough that you're only losing a couple percent of your account on each trade is the, the biggest you wanna go. Really, you wanna stick to 1%. So you'd only be losing 1% on a losing trade. So 1% to the stop. And Bitcoin being the most volatile product in the world. It is the most volatile product in the world. Because it's the most volatile product in the world, you have to have a very wide stop or you're just going to get stopped up and chopped to death. And what we call it is the death by 1,000 cuts. So you're getting cut up to death in this uptrend. Why are you going to want to hang on to that? So once again, small positions, the more volatile it is, the smaller the position. You have a bond position, you have a bigger position. But either way, always trade smaller than you think you need to. That's probably the biggest lesson I could tell anybody who wants to learn about trading, become a better trader, or who's having a struggling period. You just need to do that. Yeah, that's such an important point. The position sizing based on the relative volatility of what you're trading so that you can qualify your risk, know how you're going to stop out, and let that determine how you know how big of your stop is going to be how much of a loss you take which then helps you determine your position size and in doing so you're able to stay in those more volatile instruments like you said bitcoin or other things like natty i remember you've talked about with natty a 30 percent stop loss which sounds mm -hmm. crazy except for if your position is really small and you're managing it well it's not crazy at all this is how you have to trade the world of commodities on longer time frames and yes. natty's called the widow maker because people go in with that max leverage and, and they absolutely and spectacularly explode before there was bitcoin there was natural gas right it was humbling a lot of people along the way and that idea of position sizing it really is one of the things that is so important to the psychology of your trade too much you're going to be making bad decisions, okay? You're going to be making decisions out of fear a lot. Too little, and you're not going to care about your position, which I'm not saying you should be emotional either way, but you should have the energy to at least be like, okay, I want to manage and monitor this position. So if your position is such a negligible size that it doesn't even make a difference to you, then you're probably not going to care very much about it. So kind of finding what sizing works for you, your portfolio, your goals, your risk, that's really important.
and then taking the time to qualify that volatility. You're going to qualify it from average true range. You're going to qualify it from implied or realized vol or some combination of the two or other measures. You need to have a system that works for you. And then you can take that and you can start to backtest it a bit to figure out, you know, okay, if I stop out here and I'm using, you know, say a, a moving average cross or a relative strength build or something as my entry signal, what's my performance over time? How many entries and exits do I get? What's the, the average win rate? And, and remember, it's not just the win rate, but the amount of gains that you're taking. And if they're outsized and the types mm -hmm. of losers you're taking, and hopefully they're small enough, you can start to get a better sense of what that trading system might look like. And I know, Jason, you're very adamant about backtesting. I think that's really a wise thing because, you know, it gives us the confidence to ride through some of these trades. Because you said earlier, and it was a great point on orange juice and other things, like sometimes we just don't know when to get out if we don't have a system. We might just talk ourselves out of a great trade. And so having that backtesting can give us the confidence to say, you know what, when this signal fires off, 40% of the time, there's a 30% move. And, you know, that could be the move that we're seeing. If not, I'll stop out, let's just say, for example, 5% lower. So the risk reward ratio on that signal tells you, boy, I should just stay in this trade, trust the system. And if I get stopped out, I'll look for the next one rather than like trying to get in your head and figure this all out. Worst case scenario, when you're already in the trade, right? Yes, no, that's well said. And and Ian honestly asked me a question that gave me pause yesterday, which is I was showing a, a chart of Coco. And for these years, Coco, I've had so many trades that were like small winners, small losers, flat, whatever, for probably, I think it, I went back to 2017. And I'm showing all my trades through that. And then this huge one, you know, that just happened that we're still in right now. And it's paid for, you know, all the losers and and then you know another 20 percent of the portfolio it's been a very great trade but once again there was all those losers and volatility there and ian goes you know i guess i have to ask you if you're putting on a trade like that how do you stay uh how, how do you keep the ability to continue to put on that next trade um without just you know he said i know there has to be a mental drawdown there has to be some uh anger there and I was like, well, it's the only thing I can really say is, is trading, having faith in like Apple going up or the S&P going up or something is a bad way to trade. But what I do is I have faith in my systems and my backtesting. If I think I've put this together well and I've worked on it for many, many years and I've made this, uh, these proper trades and proper entries and proper exits, I can have faith that the next trade should work out also understanding that like through those years i had really good years just that tr some of those trades don't work you know so it tells me that once again it's it's proof of what we're talking about which is it's not just that you put on these trades and go okay well you know i'm doing uh, i need to have this very high win rate um it's that you can have this low win rate and these outsized winners you can keep looking for that next great trade because if you're if you're a real swing trader a real trend follower you're looking for major trends you're not looking for two percent or to be right like you know there's all these services out there that that tell you guys and and new traders that hey you know you got to be right all the time you're going to be right you just you just look how right we were we made this trade and and honestly they're they're not making any money you know, you, you look at something like, uh, well, I'm not going to call any names out, but if you look at something where people trade a range basically, and they're like, buy at the bottom of the range and they buy at the bottom of the range. And then you make like 
you know, they make like 1%. And they're like, yeah, look, we, we did it. We, we had a great trade. And it's like, that doesn't make you money. <laughs> so, so you're not helping your subscribers. You're not helping people by telling them that. You're making them feel like you're supposed to be right all the time to be a good trader. And really, it's not about being right all the time. It's about being, you're going to be wrong a lot and being okay with being wrong a lot. And just being like, yeah, like, hey, that's another trade. Just another trade. Just another trade. Like, good or bad, it's another trade. You'll never hear me go out and celebrate my winners or, you know, celebrate anything. What I do celebrate is my ability to continue to take that next trade and not get in my head too much. I mean, trust me, like, a great example is energy. Energy from 2015, I mean, even earlier than that, all the way till 2020 was a crap trade. Everybody had so much problems with it. I had so many friends who would tell me so many stories about how they're never buying energy again. I had a guy, a friend who had an energy fund even. It was like, I'm never buying energy again. It's the dumbest trade in the world. And you know, when I put the trade back on, I think it was November uh, 2020. Uh, it was right around the election. And I put that trade back on, I got a signal and they were like, man, I can't believe you're trading energy. It's the dumbest trade, blah, blah, blah. You know, and really what happens there is it then it went up and it was a great trade. It's continued to really be a good trade. Um, so once again, I'd say you have to understand and identify that I back tested these systems. I have faith in these systems. I know they work. I know not every trade will work. I can see the win rate. That's the other thing on my systems. I can see that the win rate is around 50 percent. So I'm not thinking that every trade is going to be a winner either. And that's the power of backtesting. You know that not every trade is going to be a winner, but you know your next trade could be the winner. And if you pass that up, then you're screwed. So once again, it's the who knows exactly where natural gas goes. You know, we had a, a great entry in that uh, a couple months ago now. Who knows where it ends up? It could come back here, but who knows where it ends up? Who knows where any of these trades end up? And that's the power of understanding your backtest. And you can also see, like, if you had if you back test and and you and I both use um, uh, TrendSpider. So if we back test on TrendSpider, you can see the, uh, the hey, I can see this situation here. Uh, this is my uh, probable outcome. I usually make around 10%, 20% on this trade, um, maybe 40, 50. Maybe if it's Bitcoin, my average winner is like 100%. Like you can see those things on it. So now that you're backtesting and backtesting software is so much easier than it used to be. Like TrendSpider has made it so anybody can backtest. It's very easy to do. You can just kind of hop on there and mess with it a little bit and boom, you have a whole system that spits out everything for you, which is phenomenal. So, you know, and I think they have even free, uh, free, um, um, do they have free uh, trials at the moment? They I think have, they do. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. So, so they have free, they even have free trials. So if you have free trials in something and you can try it out and just kind of check it out and be like, okay, well, this is cool. Or maybe you hate it, whatever. Um, but just know that most of the people who do this for a long time, they back test, whether they're day traders, long-term traders, whatever, everybody back tests. So you can have, uh, just manage your expectations. I think that's the most important part. Yeah, I, I think exactly. You nailed it right on the head. Manage your expectations, build a system that can help you get away from emotion and use a more defined approach. Know what that is going to be before you even execute a trade. Because you know what? 
going into a trade without knowing what your risk is and and what your approach is and how you're going to validate that trade is like flying blind. You just shouldn't do it. It's not going to set you up for success. You're not going to understand why you're winning or losing. And so having that systematic approach and then building back testing into it to qualify your views and your entries and exits, it can really help. And then adding to that the idea of a trading journal so you're accountable to yourself and you can learn what's working and what's not working. These are all the things that are really core components of being a successful swing trader over time. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in. As mentioned, this space will be available for you to listen to in full as a recording. We'll also put it out as a podcast on the Macrovisor website. You can check it out at macrovisor.com. We release plenty of paid and premium content. But in closing, we hope that everyone is having a good weekend. Stay safe out there. This is not the type of market where you just want to blindly catch falling knives. There is a regime change happening behind the scenes here. So it's worth being cautious and just being mindful of that environment and those dynamics playing out. And of course, if you have any questions for Jason or I, just tag us in and we'll be more than happy to talk. But until next time, because we'll be doing these regularly. Uh, thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you soon.